Hi, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. Now, we try and bring you some of the greatest stories from the world of rock firsthand. On this episode, I've got someone who's uh, really seen it all. From his early days when his song Runaround Sue went to number one on Billboard 60 years ago, to his latest record, Stomping Ground, which debuted at number one on Billboard's Blues album chart. And his guests include Boz Skaggs, Mark Knopfler, Eric Clapton, Peter Frampton, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Gibbons, and Joe Bonamassa. Anyway, Dion DiMucci is in his seventh decade of performing. In this exclusive interview, we talk about life, love, and rock and roll. And I finally find out how his face made it onto the cover of one of the most iconic rock albums of all time, Sgt. Pepper. This is Dion on The Rock Podcast. So I'm, I, just, I was just going to say, you must be feeling good. Your your new album's hit number one on the blues chart. You know, Denny, it's funny. The, uh, the pandemic, the shutdown... In spite of all the horror that's, uh, you know, is among us, uh, it, it almost worked for me. It has worked for me creatively because, you know, being, uh, it focused me because I, I wasn't running around, you know. I Right. So I, I wrote some of the best songs I've ever written. I, I, I wrote a batch of songs, maybe about 30 of them that, just uh, uh, the best I've ever written, I think. And uh, so it was fun, you know, I recorded them. And then this idea of getting people to help me out and getting some of the best guitar players on the planet and the best singers I know and friends. And it's just been a whole lot of fun for me, you know. It, so do you know all these people or you just, you just call them up. You met them over the years. What's what's the deal? You got some pretty amazing people on this record. Uh, I would say I know more than half of them. And the, the, the ones that I never really sat down and the ones, the, the, the people I've never had lunch with, like Ricky Lee Jones, or Peter Frampton. Right. So uh, you wrote all the songs but one on this, correct? I did. You know, um, uh, I do have a writing partner that, you know, I run things by, uh, but the one song that I didn't write is uh, Red House. It's a Jimi Hendrix song. Right. <laughs> Actually, it's my favorite Jimi Hendrix record. It's like if you want to study the attitude and slow blues and how to uh, approach it and the, you know, the the intention behind it, man, that's the record to study. So it's perfect. I, I would never try to compete with it. So I did a Dion spin on it, you know, and Keb, Keb Mo really loved it. He said, right. Went to the same place, but in a very different way, you know, a different approach. He said, I'm, I'm in. So he played on it and we had a good time uh, recording that song. I did it. I almost did it like a stroll, you know, the old, yeah. That's domino kind of approach, you know? Right. So did uh, did you ever meet Hendrix? I did. Once. You saw, him you saw him play or you just met him? 
I, I went to see him play at Gulfstream down in Miami and it, uh, it thundered and there was lightning and he couldn't go on. So I talked to him and I, I, uh, I played him Purple Haze <laughs> on my gut string guitar. And uh, he said, wow, it's going to the same place, a different approach. So I'm sure he's smiling down on, on, on our Red House rendition. I'm sure a number of people don't know that uh, you covered Purple Haze as your follow-up single for Abraham, Martin, and John, right? I'd like to forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't. Purple I, Haze or Abraham, Martin, and John? <laughs> it wasn't a really a follow-up. It was just one of the tunes on the album. I had to... Right. Uh, you know, back in those days, if you had a hit record, you had to put an album out. So you right. go in and just knock out an album, you know, and that's that was one of the tunes I came up with, you know, that I was, you know, I used to sit under uh, a tree down in Miami and just play songs, you know, at that time. And, uh, you know, those are the so that those were the songs I, I recorded on the Abraham Martin and John album. Right. How did that uh, song come to you, by the way? Abraham Martin. Yeah, who brought that to you? Well, you know, I had moved. <laughs> you know, the country at that time in 1968 was very restless, very torn apart with the war. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson, the war in Vietnam, the, the whole, you know, the, the protesting and the country was really a very uh, contentious kind of state. And uh, I was using a lot of drugs through the mid 60s. And I thought, man, I knew I need to start. Uh, at the beginning of 1968, my friend Frankie Lyman died of an overdose kind of scared me. And I, I told my wife, I said, let's move, let's move to Florida. I was, you know, I thought we need a new start. I have to get away from the life. I, Cause I used to run the, run the streets with Frankie Lyman and we used to use drugs. You know, we were into that. We were friends and partners in, in that way, you know, street fighters. <laughs> so I moved down to Miami and, uh, uh, like I said, I, I, I got this uh, nylon string guitar and I was sitting under the trees in the back just singing the songs of the day, you know, like the Freddie Neal songs or the Four Tops, anything that was uh, current or Marvin Gaye tune or Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> I was, you know, just, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, because I'm a creative guy and I was just, that's what I was doing. Mm. A friend of so, mine, good. The, I'm sorry. A friend of mine shows up at the door with a a song he wrote. His name is Dick Holland, and uh, it was Abraham Martin and John. I mean, I didn't write that song. He, uh, but it was like it was like a an old time it was like anybody here seen my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? Well, he's freed a lot of people, but who die young? I just look around and he's gone. You know, it was like a, a thing. So I, I thought, you know, it sounded goofy to me. It sounded like 
Is he trying to be, you know, exploit people's assassinations or, you know, trying to get old? You know, it just sounded <laughs> recordable to me. But my wife said, you know, I like that song. She said, it, it sounds like the truth. She said, it sounds like the gospel, you know, because you could kill the dreamer, but you can't kill the dream. It's people like us who pick up on it and carry it further. She said, uh, I would do that song. And I thought, is she kidding me? So I had the gut string guitar and I turned it around into a whole thing. You know, I wrote another melody to it. Like, uh, I don't know, because I was, you know, I, in the mid sixties, in the mid sixties, I was hanging around the village listening to Tim Harden, Richie Havens, uh, John Hammond Jr., you know, uh, Kenny Rankin, and uh, all these, you know, solo guitarists, Tom Paxson. So I put this rendition together. I played it for Laurie Records, and they said, "Let's do it." And I, I walked in there, and the next thing you know, they had a, Denny, they had a band in that studio that I played with. Uh, John Abbott did an arrangement on it, and I was sitting in the studio with French horns, English horns, harps, sitars, strings, oboes, violas, oboes. It, it was amazing. And I, I just did one take. I said, that's it. They said, why don't you do another one? I said, no, that's it. it that's how fast it went. It was so, and John Abbott was such a great guy. He's leading the band with his, one of his French fries. He had a bag of French fries there and he's leading the band. And it was amazing. I just, but I never thought it would be a hit. I just did it as a, maybe a, a statement that there's a state of love that does exist and it's for us to make it real. And that's how that song came about. Okay. Before we uh, talk about some of your career head, uh, highlights, let me go back to the new album. What got you into the blues? Was it Jimmy Reed? You know, yes. Very early on, I heard Jimmy Reed. And Danny, I never heard anything like that. You know, I come from an Italian neighborhood in the Bronx. And people were listening to Jimmy Roselli and, and Al Martino and all those uh, crooners. And I heard Jimmy Reed do uh, Take Some Insurance Out On Me, Baby. If you ever say goodbye, I'm going to lay right down and die. And I thought, what the hell? I thought that was the most clever line I ever heard. And then I heard, baby, what you want me to do? I was into Hank Williams at the time. So I was into stories and so on. These guys actually taught me how to live. Hmm. But I wanted to I wanted to communicate like Hank Williams and I wanted to groove like Jimmy Reed. You know, just listen to that. I got I still get in my car with the Jimmy Reed album and I hear that slap on the drum. And yeah. I go I still it still moves me. So you just mentioned uh, John Hammond Jr. I just John Hammond Sr. brought you to Columbia, correct? Yes. Yes. He, he thought I had a flair for the blues. I was up there one day sitting on a piano bench with Aretha Franklin doing uh, Drip Drop and Ruby Baby. And I never heard Fred McDowell or 
or Leroy Carr or, or you know, J uh, Robert Johnson, never heard these people, you know. And he brought me into his office. He had, he had albums on every wall of his office and uh, all four walls, <laughs> it was just a door. <laughs> and uh, he played me Preaching Blues by uh, Robert Johnson. I, I got really excited and resentful. Hmm. I was like, uh, I was excited about the music and I was resentful that I never heard it before. It was like, who's keeping this from me, you know? How come I never heard this? You know, I got kind of a little attitude about it. So he gave me a bunch of albums and I took them to my apartment and that was the end of getting hit records, I'll tell you, you know. Did you work with, uh, with Tom Wilson? I did. Because, you know, they're making a documentary about him. He's probably the most, as you, I'm gonna ask you to talk about him, he's probably the most famous unknown producer. He was, uh, he wasn't a music guy. He knew nothing about, he didn't know too much about music. He couldn't say, go to the uh, fifth chord, or he wasn't, you know, I can't either, but, but he wasn't that kind of guy. He, but he was the first guy I met who said, I like to bring out what an artist has inside him. Just now, I never, I haven't had that, uh, up until that moment that I worked with him, because up until then it used to be, do one for us and you could do one for yourself. So I would do like an Al Jolson song and I would do Ruby Baby for me. Then I would do another, you know, uh, another Al Jolson song or uh, some kind of, you know, standard and uh, a Roger, Rogers and Hart song. Then I would do a uh, uh, drip drop. I would do one for them, one for me. That's the way. It, well, until, until I got with uh, Tom Wilson, he said, no, I just like to, to bring out the best of, of what's inside you and make it sound good. And he would say, go this way, go that way. Let's." He brought uh, Al Cooper in for an album I did called Kickin' Child. Al Cooper was on organ, keyboards, and, uh, and a friend, because he, he worked right across the street in the Brill Building. But, you know, Tom Wilson was a, a very, uh, he was a scholar. He was an academic. He was uh, a beautiful looking guy, you know, tall, uh, uh, really like refined look. You know, I just, he had a way about him, you know, just a, a very uh, kind of statu statuesque, a very decisive guy, very, very bright. And uh, you get the job done. They should interview you for this documentary, or have they already? I don't know. <laughs> now, uh, Tom Wilson, for those who don't know, produced Dylan, Mothers of Invention, Velvet Underground, et cetera, et cetera. You knew Dylan in the early days. When did you first see him? Well... I first saw him when he was playing with Bobby V when I when I was on that tour with uh, uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valance, and the Big Bopper. That fatal that tour with the fatal plane crash. I was the only guy who didn't get on the plane. Uh, you know, I won a coin toss, but uh, 
it was $36. And that's what my parents used to argue about all the time, about the rent in the Bronx. So I decided not to take the plane. I, I said, I gave my, my seat to Richie Valance. I said, you know, you go. I said, make sure you take your coat. I'll, I'll take care of the guitars, you know. <laughs> Buddy Holly said to me, uh, Dion, take care of my guitar like you take care of your testicles. I mean, he actually told me that. I, I, I never heard him. I was a kid. I was like 19. He was 22. Basically, I knew what he was saying. So later on, when I saw Peter Townsend break a guitar on stage, I thought, ow, what is he doing? <laughs> it's like sacrilege. Pete, so, Pete Townsend wrote the liner notes on your album, right? Oh, Pete Townsend. Yes, he did. He wrote, I asked him to write liner notes. We became good friends because through the song Spoonful that I did in 1965, he and Roger, uh, Adultery, they, they said that was one of the best recorded songs they, they ever heard. And they wanted to know how I recorded it. And I recorded it with the Apollo, with the Apollo Theater uh, band. Uh, I brought them into the studio and just said, follow me. I had my Birdland uh, Gibson guitar with some tremolo. I was into uh, listening to the pop staples. And... Uh, I did Spoonful, and I, I told them, I said, it's, that was it. It's just a live record. They were following me, and that's the way it came out. But when I finished this album, Stomping Ground, uh, I had Bob Dylan write liner notes for the previous album, Blues with Friends. And he said such nice things, man. Uh, I mean, he said I, I wrote great blues songs, and I thought, and I always thought, this might sound fun. I always thought Bob Dylan was a great blues singer in his own way, the way he, you know, approaches it. I know it's different uh, than, you know, the, uh, the typical kind of blues approach, but he he's steeped in the blues. So I figure he knows what he's talking about. He's a Nobel Prize winner. I figure I'll take it. I'll take the compliment. So when I finished this album, I thought, you know, I'm going to ask Pete, Townsend to write some rhinos because I like the way he writes. He's a great writer, great imagination, very prolific guy. So I, I asked him and he said, I'd be delighted. And he, and he did. And when he sent me the line notes, I called him up and I said, Pete, you wrote about me in mythical terms. I'm going to have to walk around wearing a toga now. So, <laughs> He said, you want me to change him and do that? I said, no, nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> you only get one chance. <laughs> this is The Rock Podcast, and you're listening to my recent conversation with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Dion DiMucci. He has seen and heard it all. Here is part two. <laughs> so uh, first record I ever bought was The Wanderer. Just celebrated its 60th anniversary, correct? Yes. And, and I didn't know until recently that that's based on a real character, that song. Yeah, yeah. It's based on a guy named Jackie Burns. He, uh, he had tattoos. You know, he'd go out with flow. So he got it tattooed on his left arm. Then he got Mary tattooed on his right arm and Janie and Rosie on his chest. I mean, 
And then he would cover them up also, you know, with leopards and dice and I mean, crazy. But he was a, I guess he would, was before his time. Now everybody has tattoos, you know. But Jackie Burns was a character, man. He had a, he used to wear a tank top and walk down Cretona Avenue in the Bronx like he owned it. He deserved the song. But a lot of people don't understand that song because, uh, you know, they think it's about, uh, uh, I guess, a guy, you know, carefree guy having a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. They say, you know, uh, I roam from town to town. I go through life without a care. I'm as happy as a clown with my two fists of iron, but I'm going nowhere. So the guy actually sees that he's like kind of, you know, he, he's kind of shallow. He, he gets it from a second there. You know, the song turns in on itself. But I thought it's an interesting song. Uh, in the 50s, we made, you know, it, it, these days, if, if, uh, if a blues artist did it, they'd probably do it in a minor key and a little darker. Uh, but back then, we made everything fun, you know. Uh, you get country music and blues, and you put them together, you had rock and roll. But that was the wanderer. So do you, uh, do you still uh, <clears throat> go out and see shows? I mean, aside from the pandemic, obviously, but do you still go to shows? I do. And uh, it reminds me a lot of... Uh, that wreck at the Wanderer sometimes when I go out and see Shirk because, because back in those days when I did Run Around Sue and the Wanderer, I had uh, Stick Sevens playing drums and Bill Tilton playing bass or Panama Francis playing drums and Tito Wilshire on piano and, uh, uh, you, you know, Mickey Guitar Baker on guitar and so when I, when I go out and like the uh, the other night, I, well, I was at two shows this weekend. I went to see Albert Castilla and Danielle Nicole. My God, she's about the best singer on the planet, I think. And uh, and then I went down to see Bonamassa uh, at the Hard Rock, and uh, he rocked hard. <laughs> yeah, he's on your album. You must know him. Uh, and you're on his label, right? I am. I yes. Roy Weissman lives about five houses away from me. When I when I completed Blues with Friends and he, we were listening to it, he said, Dion, I'm gonna start a record label. You want to be on it? I said, Yeah, I, I love Roy. I think he's a genius. Yeah. So I, I just went with them, you know. They they know what they're doing. They uh he's been we, it's great working with him. He's a great manager. For those that don't know, his father is Elliot Weissman, who managed Sinatra. I think I might meet Elliot today. He's uh, down. There you go. All right. So um, there's a uh, a play based on some of your body of work. Uh, what's the status of that? Is it still opening next year? I'm going up to New York uh, Valentine's Day. We're going to start rehearsing. I like to be with the kids. I walk in the room, there's 40 kids there, 40 very talented kids. Uh, Joey McIntyre from New Kids on, on the Block and uh, Chris, 
Christy Altemeyer from, she was the lead in uh, Anastasia and mm-hmm. uh, Mike Wartella, who was uh, the lead in, uh, uh, what is it? Charlie's uh, Chocolate Factory or something like that. Right, yeah. They're just great talented kids, but I like to be up there so they don't get any bad, just to keep it on track so we don't get into some bad habits, you know? Because all my, my songs, have a lot of syllables behind them, you know, like say you, 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 you're doing run around Sue. Well, it's like, you don't want to get somebody going, dude, dude, whatever that, you know, you don't want to mm-hmm. get the syllables got to be right. Otherwise uh, the song don't come out. It's very important. So uh, I'm going to rehearse. We do all that. And then the play opens in Milburn, New Jersey, which is right through the Holland Tunnel uh, at a very prestigious regional theater called Paper Mill Theater, where they home the play. And when they build a set there, they're building a million-dollar set. It just moves. You can move it to Broadway. It's the same dimensions. So that's how they do it. They they hone the uh, the plays at these regional theaters. Did that with Bronx Tale, with Jersey Boys, with you know, with Tina. Uh, well, I think they honed Tina in England. You know, they got that you know all together there. But but you know, it's on track. And I think the guy wrote it. I think uh, Charles Messina wrote a hell of a story. I don't I don't know. It's just you know. Denny, if you give me something a substance, you can entertain me all day long, and that's what that's what he wrote. He he wrote something a substance, but very entertaining. What do you remember about being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because you, you were inducted in the late '80s, one of the one of the early ones. What do you remember about that? I, I'll be honest with you, I, I really felt good. I, <laughs> Because I had never gotten an award, you know, it was like kind of nice. Thrilling, actually, it was like Lou Reed inducted you, right? Yeah, it was. I I just felt good about it because, look, you know, I always want I always wanted to do something great, you know, like for take people on a trip, write a real good song, you know take them on a trip, you know, a three minute, four minute trip that go, wow, they could, you know, just because music, you can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't see it, but you could feel it, you know? So I I like to take them on that kind of trip. And when you get it, when you get an award like that, when you, when you're number one in billboard or you're, you get a, you know, a lifetime achievement award or, or rock and roll hall of fame, it's like, it's like that saying you achieve what you wanted to do. It's, it's mm-hmm. some, you know, you, you, you impressed or you, you know, you reached souls, you know, you, you made an impact, you know? So I felt, you know, I'm, I'm defining it, but all I could tell you is it felt great. I really liked, uh, I felt, I felt part of the musical community. Like they, uh, they didn't, you know, like I was a part of it. Hmm. All right, I got to ask you a couple of obligatory questions because you're in the historical uh, 
What was it like working with Phil Spector? How did that come about? Working with Phil Spector was very uh, strange. Um, you know, I love Phil. I loved him because, uh, you know, he used to come around when, when I worked the Fox Theater when I was a kid. You know, we, we started together when he had the, what is it, the teddy bears or? Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, get out of a limousine with a cape and a cane. And, you know, he was a character. He was always a character. And I love Phil. And he, he loved me. He really cared. You know, he really cared. When he got... When he signed the contract with Warner Brothers, they said, who would you like to record? And he went down the roster and he said, Dion. And I flew out there. They, they called me. They said, would you like to do a record with Phil Spector? I said, you bet. I was on the next plane. Uh, but that's a, that's a whole show in itself. Okay. Phil Spector is... It, it was different. It was uh, it, it was contentious. There was a lot of it was it was hard recording. It was it wasn't easy, but of uh, course he was at a, a a place in his life where if you were in the studio with Hal Blaine and Nino Tempo on horn, who was his college roommate, you know, actually who really helped me. And I learned a lot from Nino Tempo, how to how to communicate with Phil, a lot, because I I you know I'm from the Bronx, so I was ready to walk into the, uh you know the the uh, the, the control room and you know give him a piece of my mind, because I wasn't going to take no shit from nobody, but as I walked past Nino Tempo, he, he said, Dion, come over here. And he said, you know, listen, I, I, uh, I, I was Phil, Phil's roommate in college. He said, listen, don't ever challenge him in the control room. Don't ever say anything to him. If, if you're going to talk to him, make sure you call him outside the control room and bring him in a room down, down the hallway alone. Get him alone, look him in the eye and tell him what you want to tell him like a man. Don't challenge him with 30 people in the control room because it's, it's not going to go anywhere. He's not going to, you know, you're going to get into, a, 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 you know, just real conflict and there's no way to resolve it. But if get him alone. And that was the best thing he ever told me. So I used to call Phil. <laughs> he used to go, get away, get away. I think, Phil, I got to talk. No, get away, get away. Phil. Give me one minute. He come out. I take him across the hallways. I look him in the eye and say, Phil, <laughs> you know, I love you. I got to be, you know, you got to treat me like I'm treating you. You you know, I respect you. I love you. You know, stop this bullshit, you know. So and and then he would, you know, he so he learned, you know, he had a lot of respect for me. And uh, uh, he was in a different place. Everything sounded like a dirge to me. But as I look back on those sessions, I'm glad I did it. And I got to tell you, Denny, uh, <laughs> it was like the who's who of rock. I mean, people, as I was recording, Springsteen came, 
with little Steven and we'd be sitting and, you know, Phil Spector would do a show and, you know, he would go through his whole routine and Clarence Clements and, and then, you know, Sonny and Cher would stop by or Jack Nicholson or who was in that studio in and out, you know, and I was like trying to make a record. I was like, give me a break. What am, what am I doing here? You know, uh, you know, I wish I had more tolerance or patience, but I was, I was uh, on a, but it, you know, it's fun to look back on now. And, uh, and some of those records, like only, you know, a record that I, I, I love listening to it. I, I, uh, he, he and Jerry Goffin wrote it, and uh, it's a good record. Only you know. Google it. I will. And uh, Born to Be With You, is that also in that session? Yeah, yeah. Nino Tempo, and you know, is the horn player. And, you know, everything was at a snail's pace. I don't know why, but that's where Phil was at. And my wife kept saying, how's the former genius? You know, I'd come back to the hotel. How's the former genius? You know, don't don't screw around. My, my wife is like, <laughs> you know how wives protect you. You know, right? Uh, you, you've been you've been married a long time. Yeah, fifty uh, what fifty some years? Eight years, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. I I put up with her. <laughs> okay, I I I gotta ask you this. I'm sure you get it asked all the time, but because it we just passed the anniversary and it's so big right now. How did you get on the cover of Sergeant Pepper? How did I? <laughs> well, I told the Beatles, if you put my picture on that cover, you'll sell more albums. That's how I got. <laughs> so, I, I, uh, I believe the way that happened, I'd like to believe, because I met, I met John Lennon and Ringo Starr on 57th Street. Um, and uh, I think it was February of, could have been 64. It was their first show at Connie. 64, yeah, 64. And they were, you know, he was shopping. I lived on 57th Street. Connie Hall's on 57th Street. Right. Bernstein was a friend of mine who had brought them over. And of uh, course, he did a lot of the, uh, the Brooklyn Fox shows and the, the Brooklyn Paramount shows. Right, Sid Bernstein, yeah. Yeah, and he was a great guy. Oh, Sid was the best. So there I see, you know, they're very new on the scene, but very popular. And there's John Lennon in the store. And we bought the same leather jacket, you know. I still have mine. He wore his on, uh, uh, on Rubber Soul. It was like a, a suede, uh, you know, short, you know, bomber jacket. And uh, when I talked to John Lennon, he, he told me about how much he he loved Ruby Baby and how they used to, uh, uh, you know, do it in Hamburg, Germany when, when they were honing their skills. And uh, so I thought when they did Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart, Hearts Go Band, that he, he cut the... Uh, head out of the cover. I don't know. They cut the head off, you know, they took 
that shot off of the Ruby Baby album cover and put it on Sergeant. That's what I think, but I don't know. So you didn't know about it until after it came out? Who yeah. told you? My guitar player, who was like very into Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles. So hey, you're on the cover. You know, he, he had the album, you know, before it came out. <laughs> you know, hey, look at you, you know. So, uh, but... I would, that was, it was nice. So, you know, not, these days, Denny, you know, I, I tell everybody that they should put, you know, a, you know, a headshot of me on their album cover. They would sell a lot, <laughs> you know, believe me, yeah, it's true. Do you, uh, do you remember uh, seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan? I do. What do you remember? Well, it was kind of exciting, but I had... I, you know, to be honest with you, I was mm -hmm. never really a Beatles, Beatles guy, never. Uh, I was like, you know, I was more into Jimmy Reed. I'm more into the Stones, you know, more into like, uh, it was it was like complicated to me, the Beatles. You know, it was like uh, almost cute, you know. I, I liked a little more, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It was like, uh, I liked, I liked little Richard. I like Bo Diddley. I like Fats Domino. Uh, I like the Everly brothers. So I wasn't, you know, head over heels in that. But although I loved Rubber, Rubber Soul, I bought that album. I, I really liked that album and Revolution. You know, there were, there were some things I really liked that they did, but I was never, I was more a Rolling Stones guy. So what are you going to do about your next album? You know, I've been thinking about it today. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning. We were just having breakfast. And I said, you know, I don't know. It's been so natural, so natural and so organic to just write a good song, go in and cut it with a band, and, you know, do a great, you know, I'm a good, I'm a great expressionist, a great rhythm singer. I, I am. I've been doing it for so long. Mm, yeah. To get that. And then on the way home, Denny, I, I kid you not. On the way home, I, I listen to these things and I think, you know, G.E. Smith would sound great on this. You know, Kingfish would blow this record apart. You know, that kind of thing. I, I just hear these people. I do so much listening to music that I, I could hear a certain type of guitar player on, on the song. And, and that's been fun. That's a new, that's something new for me. Uh, I play guitar and I play better than a lot of people think I or know I play, but I don't play like these guys, like Sonny Landry. Nobody plays like Sonny Landry. I mean, he's just otherworldly. He's incredible. And uh, so sometimes I'll just be listening to a song. I say, I'd love to hear Sonny on this. I, I, I play it for him. I, I'll send it to him and he'll say, I'm in, you know, mm. uh, like, uh, like with Keb Moe, I knew he could do Red House. I knew he had that. He's so real, Keb Moe. You know, he's so honest and and authentic and genuine. He he would just, 
he could get inside a song. He doesn't try to impress anybody or anything. He just does it. You know, he just feels it and does it, you know, and, and that's been so much fun that I thought, cause somebody was saying, Hey, you know, you should do an album with a bunch of women because there's so many, cause I'm always talking about women that sing great. Like I love Danielle Nicole. I love Rachel Price. I let, you know, uh, you know, Shamika Copeland, there's, there's people is, you know, Ruthie Force, you know, this, this, I always talk about that. You should do an album with all these girls. I said, you want to know it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to end up like Tony Bennett. I mean, I love Tony Bennett. Don't get me wrong, but it sounds like gimmicky. And I'm, I wasn't doing a gimmick. I was making, I'm making music. I want to make the, I want to do what's right for the song. So I thought, you know, the way I'm doing it now, Denny, I, I feel like I could continue to write or just do a, a song I love and do what I'm doing. If I hear somebody on it, like that, that I feel should, I want to, you know, that, that could enhance the song. Cause that's the most important thing to me, the song. I don't care about me, them or anybody else. To me, it, you got to serve the song. When you serve the song and the song is right, even Ringo Starr is good looking. If the song don't fly, you couldn't care less about Ringo Starr. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. You are a genius when the song is right. So you got to get the song right. It's the most important thing uh, to serve that song. And uh, that's what I'm about. And because it's going to take people on a trip. And what you want to do is I was telling, I was telling Rachel Iverson over at the company this morning, I said, Stomping Ground is a, is an album. I said, Rachel, it cannot be denied. It's the, the, the music is, I know what I'm talking about. I said, I'm an artistic guy. It cannot be denied. So it'll find a place. It'll, it'll rise. It'll cut through whatever. I trust it because you can't keep, good music down you can't you, you can't fake it you gotta like make music that cannot be denied do something great and and you know i i put the thought into it and i write a good song but then then i it's easy to express you, you know why i was telling some guy at the gym yesterday uh, because I kid you not, we have a lot of young black guys at the gym, trainers, wonderful guys. Never heard of Sunhouse, never heard of uh, Sister uh, Rosetta Thorpe, never heard of, uh, uh, they didn't hear of, uh, of Howlin' Wolf. So I'm turning them on to these songs. I said, Muddy Waters, I said, you can't find these guys thinking. They just do it. They're not thinking, they're not trying. And then I thought, why am I like that? Because you can't catch me thinking. And I thought, the reason why I'm like that is I write my own songs. I'm not hearing anybody in my head. I do my own thing. So and what's the story? You you met Howlin' Wolf. Is there a little story there or something? You know, uh, uh, Howlin' Wolf was 
a brutally honest guy. The way the way he uh, you see some of those documentaries, the way he talked to Sunhouse, he'd get on. I mean, it breaks your heart. He he almost looks like a bad guy the way he talks to people. You know, he told Sunhouse, "You're wasting your life, man. You 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 you're like you you know he he just." nailed him. He was like brutally honest with him. Because Sunhouse was, he says, you don't care, you know, like just, he, he just, he had a big heart. I think he was like, you talk about hard love, you know, boy, that guy was hard love. He, he, he was brutal. Uh, but I get it. I get it. I liked him. He was scary. He was scary. He, he asked me something in the dressing room, like, uh, where'd you learn how to play guitar like that? And I, I just, I was shaking. You know, I thought he was going to kill me if I gave him the wrong answer. And I told him I listened to records and stuff. And he said, oh, okay, you know. Hmm. I, I figured, okay. Well, listen, I want to I thank you. I think our time's coming to an end here. I want to thank you very much. For doing this i want to wish you a lot of luck this album is uh, off to a great start uh, i hope you enjoyed our visit with rock and roll hall of famer dion demucci visit our website at therockpodcast.com check out our uh, facebook page and you can send me an email at hello at therockpodcast.com or through the website we read all the correspondence this is denny somak Join us next time. So long.